Welcome to the LPP Podcast. LPP is the Life Process Program, an online, non-12-step counseling program for people with addictions, and not only to drugs, but to any number of non-drug involvements as well. To learn more about the Life Process Program or to access free addiction-related educational resources, visit our website at lifeprocessprogram.com or follow any of the links in the show notes. You can also text us at 802-391-4360. That's 802-391-4360. And yes, when you text us, it will be a real person on the other end, ready to direct any questions or comments that you may have about the Life Process Program, our podcast, or just addiction-related questions in general. Today I speak with Bill Kinkle. Bill calls himself a person in recovery, although he's quick to explain that the term probably means something different to him than it does to many others, and this is something we discuss in the interview. Bill is a nurse, a paramedic, and an advocate working at what he calls the intersection of harm reduction and recovery. Unfortunately, Bill lost his nursing license in the process of seeking professional help to overcome an opioid addiction. He and I discuss what may have led to his addiction in the past, as well as his experience in the treatment system and how he's doing now. Here's a relevant point. Bill's worldview including his religious views, did not jive with AA. Yet he was expected to attend AA in order to regain his nursing license. And this is not only bad practice, by my way of thinking, but the situation is arguably a violation of Bill's First Amendment right. And unfortunately, we hear stories like this pretty frequently from our LPP clients. I'm going to leave it there and let the interview explain itself. Before I do, I just want to add to my guest's list of bona fides. Bill is also the co-host of a show called Health Professionals in Recovery, a podcast designed to open the conversation for healthcare professionals experiencing problematic substance use and recovery in a profession that, as we'll learn today, is hostile to drug use. I only started listening to this podcast after I interviewed him here, so he and I didn't get to talk about it much, but um, he, along with his co-host, Sean Fogler, do an incredible job. It's a show that I'm recommending to you now. And I've invited both of them to appear on the Social Exchange podcast, which is another podcast that I host. I'll link to that in the show notes, and I'll give relevant links to Bill's work in the show notes as well. Now, with no further preamble, enjoy today's interview with Bill Kinkle. I'm here with Bill Kinkle. Bill, thanks so much for joining me today. Yeah, thanks for having me. And we were just talking before I started recording about how you and I coming across people's work like yours and mine respectively has been reaffirming. Is, it, is that maybe how you'd say it? Yeah, it's, I mean, it gets exciting when you, when, you, when you, you know, you meet people that think critically about these issues and not just what they've been fed, you know, by the, the treatment industry for years. It's, yeah, it's enlightening. It's, it's healing. But in the beginning, it was liberating. What's the beginning for you and how did you creep into this work? So currently I'm 46 years old and, you know, I identify as a person in recovery in quotes and, you know, later on we can define what that means. But so around the age of 34, uh, I developed, you know, what people would say is a, you know, opioid use disorder at 34 and fell into pretty, you know, heavy addiction and all the things that you would expect would come with addiction, which homelessness, jail, 32 treatment centers over a 10-year period, mm-hmm. um, lots of ups and downs. Um, and for me, the big issue, what I kept trying to figure out, so prior to that, I was a nurse, and before that, I was a paramedic, and I'd spent my first 15 years as an adult working. I mean, I became a, nurse, a paramedic when I was 19, 
And then a nurse about, I don't know, 10 years later or so, so when I went to nursing school and I was working before that, so I worked at the, in the pre-hospital arena as a paramedic, and then I eventually worked in the emergency department at the University of Pennsylvania uh, as a nurse. Um, at the time, like I was pretty high functioning, doing a lot of academic work and a lot of speaking and really just the typical type A personality of just really driven and passionate about what I cared about and what I did for a living. And so at 34, you know, start doing drugs and end up homeless in an abandoned house. And for me, kind of this big moment was, you know, I was living on the street homeless in Philadelphia and, you know, now famous Kensington section, which is the neighborhood I grew up in as a kid. And I was in an abandoned house and it was actually the house that I spent most of my childhood in. It was my grandparents' home Mm -hmm. and it was now an abandoned house and just, you know, completely demolished inside. But I was in the basement and I found a photo of my family uh, with like me as a baby with my parents around me, like in the rubble on the floor. And so I was trying, for me, there was this big moment of, well, how the hell does that happen to somebody? Like, how is it that, you know, eight, nine months prior, I was literally touring the world, um, speaking and educating physicians and other nurses and advancing the field of medicine and now I have nothing but the clothes on my back and I'm homeless and can't stop injecting heroin daily. So when I, you know, through a really long road, I eventually, you know, found recovery or, you know, that my life improved and I've spent most of my time trying to figure out how the hell that happened because, you know, we end up in these treatment centers because that's where you go, right? You go to rehab, you go to detox, you go to rehab and that's supposed to fix you and I never found that very satisfying. I never found it very helpful. I felt that it was just always focused on the drug and you just need to stop doing the drug. And, you know, when most treatment centers, every, you know, all 32 treatment centers that I had been in, they were all exclusively 12-step focused, which I found really problematic because, I mean, for a number of reasons. I mean, I couldn't comprehend the, I mean, especially coming from 15 years in academic medicine, you know, writing research papers and thinking about things scientifically, I couldn't comprehend that now I go into this treatment center and the number one thing that I'm supposed to do is pray and apologize to people and forgive people. And unless I devote my life to a life of prayer and forgiveness and penitence, uh, I'm never going to get my quote unquote disease into remission. And so that was just, I could not comprehend uh, how that would help me at all. Did you feel like, you know, you're being told that this was the way to move forward with your life? And at the same time, nothing about it was resonating with you. Did you feel like you were wrong or that the program was wrong or just utter confusion? I mean, so it was, it was, a, it was an evolution of thought. You know I mean, in, in the beginning, it was utter confusion and just complete putting my hands up of, you know, this makes zero sense. Um, and then as I went further on, you know, I pushed back. But I think there, there's this point where, you know, the deeper you get, into the negative consequence area, you know, when you have problematic use, which I prefer that term over opioid use disorder or disease or anything else. I think problematic use, at least at the moment, if you talk to me in five years, I might have changed my mind. But where where I kind of sit today is, you know, problematic substance use, because I don't necessarily think substance use is a bad thing. I think there's a lot of really good reasons and rational reasons that people use substances. Um, But mine became problematic and to the point that I was homeless and you know, my health was disintegrating and all that kind of stuff. I just didn't find that helpful because like the more I thought about, you know, what treat, the treatment industry was feeding me, uh, you know, in this 12 step format, what I really just started digging into is like, well, there's a reason why I 
picked, you know, why I decided at 34 that using heroin would be a good idea. And so that's what I spent a lot of time exploring, trying to figure out what led to that. You know, why did I use those substances? And I think it's really important now. I mean, as I work with a lot of other people, trying to help them navigate the negative aspect of their use. I'm glad you yeah. circled back to you at 34. Yeah. I'm imagining you, you'll definitely please correct me and don't even be nice about it if I'm wrong. But I would imagine that around that time you found that opioids or drugs in general maybe satiated you to an extent that, you know, other things weren't satiating you or, or your life wasn't feeling as good as when you felt high on opioids and you were perhaps having trouble generating those similar experiences in other domains of your life. And I'm wondering uh, maybe what was going on for you then to make that the case, or, or maybe if I'm getting this all wrong and, and you'd say it differently. No, you're absolutely right. I mean, cause yeah, I mean, my experience, uh, you know, people whose lives are going really well and they're completely content generally don't develop problematic use of heroin. Um, so no, I mean, it, so at 34, I had this kind of catastrophic moment of like an abrupt divorce. Uh, I was married mm -hmm. to another woman before and, and kind of came home one day and the marriage was over. So looking back in the moment, I had no idea this was going on, but you know, looking back, I was, I became really depressed to the point that I really couldn't function. And so just to rewind a little bit about like experientially opioids. Um, so about eight years, maybe about six years prior to that, I had a kidney stone. And when I was in the ER, you know, I got prescribed Percocet, they gave it to me. And I remember when I took opioids, you know, I'm one of those like big E euphoria kind of guys, you know, mm -hmm. you know, most of the population's a little E, I'm a big E, you know, as Kevin McCauley says, but that was my experience. I thought, man, this is, this must be how normal people feel just comfortable in the world. And socially, I didn't really feel very anxious. And I just, I felt really just at ease and like this kind of like homeostasis with the universe, if you want to say it that way, but something was very different to the point that I dealt with kidney stone pain and didn't take the medicine for that. You know, I kept the prescription for when I was going to go to a concert or I was going to go camping with the guys or some other social function, you know, when the prescription was over, uh, you know, that was the end of it. I didn't think much of it because my life was going really well. Uh, I didn't need that daily. It was more of just a recreational fun thing to do, but it did have a profound impact on me to the point that when you fast forward later on at 34, when I was going through the divorce, I went home um, after working in the ICU uh, and had some opioids in my pocket. Um, wasn't malicious. And I feel like this is, this is the stigma and shame that comes with this, that I feel like I need to explain that I didn't purposefully steal drugs from the hospital, that I went home accidentally. Um, but then I took them home and I was like, oh, you know what? I remember that Percocet thing. Maybe this will help me feel better and injected some Dilaudid. And I was like, wow, yep, now I feel great. And so that pretty quickly transitioned to a daily thing. And within a month, you know, I found out where to buy street heroin. And then from there, it was kind of a wrap, as they say. Um, but what people don't realize, you know, when I talk about this and people are like, well, you know, didn't you know better? You should have known better. And I think by the way the rest of the world looks at us or people like us who struggle with this, it's easy to think that um, because I was a product of the 80s. I mean, I grew up in the just say no era. Uh, I was a paramedic at 19. I'd been, you know, in medicine as a medic and a nurse responding to overdoses, taking care of people with addiction, all I saw the negative consequences on a level most of the population doesn't see. So you would think that that on some level, if it was about 
just having enough knowledge and experience that I wouldn't have done that. But what people don't realize is that my depression had gotten so severe. It was really my decision-making came down to this. I don't think I can carry on with life anymore today. And so in my left hand, I have a gun that's loaded and I'm either going to put that to my temple and pull the trigger or in my right hand, I have some heroin and that at least can get me till tomorrow that I can live with myself for now until I figure the rest of this out. And that was really my decision-making process. And it was very much life or death and heroin allowed me the opportunity to breathe, you know, as ironic as that is of an expression, but I was able to breathe and live with myself to get to the next day until I figured out why I felt so crappy about my life. And that's sort of how it happened. If we were talking in just pure practical terms, like I wish that most clinicians would do, and, and you said to me, man, I really need help with this problem, and you described it just like that. I mean, I think most people would say then, you know, without the added baggage of, of the stories that and messaging we often hear, they would say, well, maybe I could help you figure out ways of adding to your life experiences so you don't feel like those are the only two options, or tipping the scale in favor of conscious living rather than doing drugs and into oblivion yeah but but that's not what you uh at all what you experienced when you were coerced is it fair to say into uh into treatment yeah well, i mean so it's really complicated um so i mean just real quickly yeah. the past 10 years i've thought like one thing that i found really important to me is like how did that happen at 34 like why is it that i did this and it became problematic to the degree it did and other people don't like what, why was I so vulnerable in this stage of my life? And so I think for me, a big piece of it, and, and this really is tied to the coerced treatment aspect and what I go through now with trying to regain my license is that, you know, in, in medicine, you know, we don't address the stress of the job. I mean, I was in, think about it. I was a 19 year old kid making life and death decisions uh, that I have had to live with for the rest of my life because some of them didn't end well. And in the early nineties, uh, you know, working in a firehouse as a young paramedic, I couldn't come back from a tough call and say, I want to process through this. That would be one way to ensure that I'd be fired. Mm -hmm. uh, you know, it was no, suck it up, go on the next call. And after work, we'll go to the bar and get a couple beers and we'll forget about it because that's what we do. And I think that culture exists across the spectrum of medicine and healthcare, nurses, physicians, paramedics, all of us. We have this, um, you know, superhero, superhuman expectation on ourselves that we're not going to be affected by the trauma that we see repeatedly. Because again, it's not a one-time thing. I mean, especially when we worked in the emergency department, you know, we'd have a, you know, a young kid, a 14-year-old kid would come in with multiple gunshot wounds that we would exhaust every bit of effort, both intellectually, physically, coordination with the team to try and save this kid's life. And then they, you know, they die. And then it doesn't end there because part of my job was to prepare the body and make it presentable. Then I had to speak with the family and help them mm -hmm. grieve through the process, take the kid to the morgue and then come back. So think about that. If in, in the normal world, if you had a day like that, your boss would say, take the day off and go home. I mean, go be with your family. But in medicine, it's no, you come back and then you do it again for the rest of your shift over and over and over again, repeatedly day after day for years and years and years. And I don't think we address secondary trauma and how that affects people. And so I, I think that played a part in increasing my vulnerability that, you know, I had 15 years of incredible stress that I had no outlet to talk about how that affected me. Um, and one, I mean, I think there's a personality piece to me that, you know, I tend to be like most other people that like opioids that I'm, I'm 
just exquisitely tender to the pain of others around me for some reason. Like I pick it up, I feel it, I share some of their pain. And I think that there's, I have no idea how to explain that, but I've heard it so many times from other people who have used opioids, you know, that they're the same type of person that I am. And so you put me in an environment where people are getting hurt all day and it's a pretty low threshold for me to take on that pain and hurt myself. So I think that led to a part of it. And so think about it. So we've got this culture where this tough guy culture and at the same time, a culture of, you know, if you want to go to the bar and get smashed, that's totally acceptable. That that's called self-care in medicine, right? Mm. Let's go and get jacked up after the shift so we can go and come back tomorrow and do it again. But once you start doing, you know, the quote unquote harder drugs like Coke or heroin, like that's kind of black sheep area nobody wants <laughs> that's to an interesting double that. standard yeah yeah but, but that's know, how it you is got, you got the same same doing the same things <clears throat> to yourself for the same reasons exactly but those ones are taboo and we know why i mean because of yeah. drug war and drug policy and just the history of how we view drugs and the way media portrays people who use drugs all affects how we think about that stuff when i you know started having a really hard time with heroin uh, I didn't know who to talk to and only two people knew. Well, so two people knew outright that I was struggling with heroin. Turns out pretty much everybody I worked with knew, but just didn't know what to do about it. So they ignored it, which I totally understand that. I mean, you've got this guy who's a pretty high functioning, reliable person who you respect. And then all of a sudden you suspect they're doing heroin. Like what the hell do you do with that in that type of environment? Like I don't fault anybody for not addressing mm. it, sure. but, but the two people that did know, uh, their main focus was we need to keep this quiet as possible and figure out how to help you because if we tell anybody, you're going to lose your license. Like the board of nursing is going to come in. They're going to take your license. You'll never practice again. Hmm. And so that led to me being more silent and actually yeah. progressively getting worse because of the shame component instead of saying, no, this is a pretty normal function. I mean, people in healthcare develop addictions at a higher percentage than the rest of the population. Um, now, it's the numbers are slight, but most people agree that those are very underreported because of the shame component. So, I mean, the estimates are that people in healthcare suffer at twice the rate of the general population from what I've seen. And so we're pretty susceptible to this, but nobody freaking talks about it. I mean, so there's no way I was going to say anything to anybody. And we certainly don't have a culture of recovery in medicine. You know what I mean, if you've, if you've gone through this and you got, you know, through your addiction and you moved on in life, Nobody says a damn thing about it except for a few of us because it's just – that's not something you talk about. And I think that creates a big problem on two ends. One, people like me who suffered felt that I couldn't ask for help when I was struggling. And two, the patients that we take care of. I think it would be incredibly valuable for patients, particularly in the midst of the drug poisoning you know, overdose yeah. crisis, yeah. that if somebody ends up in the ER after an overdose – and the doc comes in and sits down next to him. Like, you know, think about it. Somebody comes in after an overdose, they got Narcan, they feel like crap. Imagine if the doc came in and said, hey, man, I overdosed 10 times myself. Uh, do you want to talk about that? Because I got through it, man. We, we could work together and get through this. I think that would carry extraordinary power. And we don't do that because there's no culture of recovery. So for me, it was a 10-year struggle on and off. I voluntarily, you know, I reported myself to the State Board of Nursing uh, after my first inpatient treatment because, you know, it's all about honesty, right? It's all about rigorous honesty. So you got to be honest. So the first thing I did was call the board of nursing and tell them that I was, you know, I started using heroin because I was trying to cope with depression related to divorce. And they said, all right. And so this was right after my first treatment where I was administratively discharged, you know, the nice way of saying kicked out um, for. What, what led you to that treatment, by the way? Did you, it was, was, you, uh, you went on your own? 
No, I mean, it was family. Like everybody was just trying to figure out what the hell do we do with them. So everybody kind of pooled money together in credit cards and sent me to a ridiculous, you know, posh rehab with horses and a helicopter and all that nonsense that didn't do anything to, to help. You know what I mean? But But you were mandated. uh, No, I wasn't mandated. No, I mean, I hadn't reported to the board of nursing at that point. And this was after about two years of being on the street and, and pretty severe addiction. And so I really wanted to get back into practice because, I mean, I loved my job. I love medicine and I love caring for other people. And so when I came out, I had this idea of like, okay, as long as I'm rigorously honest, everything's going to work out great. Right. But at that point, I was so opposed to 12 steps because of my experience there because I'm like, I can't get this. I mean, I was kicked out because I wouldn't pray. They're like, your atheism is toxic. You have to go. Wow. And I was like, I was like, I don't really understand this because there's a whole chapter in the big book that's directly addressed to me and this problem of disbelief so but anyway so when I called the board of nursing part of the requirements were okay you know you have to submit to you know checking in daily for random drug screens okay Uh, but the other thing was you need to commit to 90 and 90 and three years of three 12-step meetings a week and back then I was a little more brash I guess than I am now but I told him you know it's like that's it's a violation of my constitutional rights I'm not doing that you know I mean there's got to be some other alternative you know, I thought it was like that. You know, 12 step meetings are just not helpful for me. I really can't make sense of this. And they immediately had a hearing that I wasn't aware of and slapped a five year minimum suspension on my license that I couldn't even enter the program if I wanted to for five years for non compliance. And then they published everything about me uh, publicly on the Board of Nursing websites. I mean, if you go on the Pennsylvania Board of Nursing website and search my license number and my name, uh, it'll come up that, you know, Mr. Kinkle called himself reported because he was using heroin to cope for a divorce, which doesn't really do a lot for me long-term healing-wise, that that's public knowledge. Certainly not. Um, it certainly doesn't make me a better caregiver in the future. And so... This is what you get for being forthright about the fact that you are taking care of yourself. <laughs> right. You know, well, I mean, I think it's more important than that, though, right? It's not just taking care of myself, but it's having gone through a couple years of a really hard road of trial and error with different treatment centers and identifying this treatment that you have right here does not work well for me. I want to get better. I want to be healthier and happier in my life. This way I know won't do it. What other options do I have? And them mm-hmm. saying, tough shit, this is what you need to do. And that's what I'm going through now. I mean, because a little bit more than two and a half years ago, um, you know, when I got sober again, uh, you know, because I had a period of sobriety and a relapse and then somehow back back into sobriety for a couple of years now. But I called them and said, I'd really like to work towards getting my license back. And it was the exact same rules. Uh, And I have consistently on every monthly progress report and communication with the board uh, expressed to them over and over again that, these 12 step programs are not helpful for me, especially since uh, I've recognized one, you know, the 15 years of, of secondary trauma and the effect that that's had on me. But then, you know, I was sexually abused as a kid when I was six years old. And then I was subsequently raped as an adult uh, when I was in jail for a minor offense related to my drug use. Mm. And so all that stuff, I was, I, I keep telling them like, you know what? I really think a good therapist would be the the most valuable thing I could do, especially because at the end of this three-year period with the Board of Nursing, you're going to consider reinstating my license. And right now, the only – so the reason that they have these programs is to protect, quote-unquote, public safety. You mean the safety of the public because you're a licensed 
you know, healthcare professional. But I was like, so right now, the only thing you have to go on is at the end of three years, you're going to have listed that I attended 486 AA meetings and I had negative drug screens for three years. And I was like, I'm telling you that I have a whole bag full of trauma that I haven't really worked through yet. And I need to because that's what's going to make me a safe and healthy practitioner, not AA meetings and negative drug screens. And they just won't budge on it. Still to this day? Still to this day. will not. I mean, I've had a couple of communications, especially since I started speaking pretty publicly, um, you know, speaking out about the program and just how it needs to change. I had a couple communications here and there, and it's always um, – my per- my perception of it is there's, it's very intimidating of sorry 12 steps isn't working for you yet but you need to keep going and so really it's that there's this implicit blame that i'm just not trying hard enough uh you know at these endless meetings you know talking about things that you know and this really isn't a knock on 12 steps i mean i know a lot of people who are really healthy and satisfied and they find the 12 step program it's great for them and I'm a supporter of whatever you need to be happy in your life. You know what I mean? If you want to define it by collecting chips and counting days on the calendar, if that's what gives you meaning in your life, then rock on with that. Yeah. Um, but I, I don't. Uh, I think that's really limiting, and I think it hurts the rest of us because I think that's one of the reasons why we have these stupid definitions of what recovery means, that it just means you've been abstinent for 287 days, and that's what recovery means. And that's really sells the rest of us short. Sure. So that's a good distinction. You're not knocking 12 steps that they exist. You're taking a jab at the fact that there is coercion to acquiesce to one set of principles that you may or may not agree with. And who cares if you agree with them or not? This is the way that will. And everyone knows that that's just not the way that you help people live a better life. No, I mean, not at all. I mean, the, the number one, you know, the number one motivator for change, like everything that we know about, about change, right, has to do with the individual and their personal autonomy and them directing their life and them setting goals for themselves that they see as, you know, attainable and them making baby steps towards achieving those goals. So you force somebody into a certain pattern, you know, whether they like it or not, or they might find it helpful or not, that's, you're still going to have a much less healthy outcome than you will by letting them direct it. And I think for me personally, I've done a considerable amount of work in a number of different ways to really pinpoint things in my life that, okay, these were significant things that I should probably start working through to one, ensure that this doesn't happen again, um, but, or to develop, you know, just some type of safety plan for myself, but really just comes down to, I want to be a healthier person and I want to figure out how to deal with all this extra trauma that I had in my life. And meetings don't do that for me. Um, You know, my first sponsor, that I had when I was going through my fifth step with him when I got to the rape thing in prison, his answer was like, well, you really need, we're going to need to work on that because you need to find your place in that and make amends for it. And Mm. I thought, okay, done with you. I mean, luckily I'm married to a social worker who's a counselor and she's much brighter than I am. And so I had a lot of insight into, okay, you're going to, you have the capacity to hurt me. You know, you're counsel for me as a sponsor is most likely going to hurt me. So I had to, to ditch that, you know, and I just didn't find it helpful. I found up, I found the whole fifth step thing going through that without a professional, uh, really jacked up my mind, to be honest with you. It took a while to get through, but I think, like I said, I've pinpointed these things that I, I have identified for myself as areas that would be very worthwhile to work through. 
and there is just no place and no leeway for that with the Board of Nursing, nor do I have time. So I'm a, you know, I work full time. I'm a father of three really small children. I'm a husband. Uh, I do a lot of advocacy work outside of normal paid work. And so I have to fit in three AA meetings, which is, you know, five to six hours a week with travel and everything, you know, on top of these, the drug screens that I have to do. So I really, I don't, I live day to day in that sense, because every day I wake up not knowing if I have to reorganize my schedule today to get to a testing site where I pay out, outrageous fees, um, just incredibly inflated fees to go pee in a cup. And then the other piece of it is that for the first three times I went for drug screens, I couldn't figure out why I felt like such garbage. And then I was talking to my wife about it. And as I was describing what happened, because they all have to be witnessed. Right. So you go in and remember, I'm, I'm, a, I'm a nurse. So I have to go be around my peers, other nurses who know why I'm there because of the paperwork. And so you're treated like crap. I'm treated like I'm in prison again. You have to empty your pockets, be patted down. And then you go into this room where they have to stand there and watch you pee into a jar. And so it struck me after talking to her that, oh, yeah, I'm having flashbacks of being raped every time I go for a drug screen. So, I mean, think about the irony of that. Mm -hmm. So one of the main things that drove my drug use was this trauma of being raped, that I used drugs to suppress the stress of that trauma. And now I'm purposefully re-traumatized to that same event that drove the drug use in order to prove that I'm going to be healthy and sober. It's insane. And so in your stalemate with the nursing board, are you still acquiescing to their, to yeah. their uh, need for you to go to AA meetings? Yeah. Yeah. I still go to, th I go to three meetings a week. I just went and peed in a cup yesterday and paid ridiculous fees for it. Um, and had to reorganize my, my schedule completely. You know, I had a full day. I was supposed to work 12 hour shift. I had a bunch of other things to do. The labs are only open a cert certain times a day. So I had to take some time off from work, leave to go do this drug screen, you know, so it's a loss of pay because of the hours that I had to leave um, on top of the testing site that I went to. So there's collection fees. You know, these sites, they charge whatever they want to just to put your pee in a bottle and put it in the mailbox to mail it to the lab, which could range anywhere from 25 to $60. And so the place that I go to by my house is 25, but the place that was closer to work was 60. So loss of wages for two hours, you know, paying ridiculous fees for these collection fees. I mean, it just all adds up to, a lot of stress, but yeah, I'm still doing it. I have about nine, I have about nine months, oh, seven months left um, until I'm up for reinstatement. So I'm a little bit more than two and a half years into this program. And so at this point, you know, I'm just trying to keep pushing through, yeah, just to get my license back. But, you know, after two and a half years, I mean, to be honest, I'm feeling significant weight of the stress of this. I mean, it really, I mean, you know what it's like, you know, when you're, when you're in living a normal life, your life's very busy, you know, you mm -hmm. have kids and all these different things. So having these monkey wrenches thrown in every day that are essentially pointless, they're not doing anything. Like at the end of this, this will not say anything about my health or safety as a practitioner, right? Me right. as a nurse, like this isn't going to tell you shit, except that I went to 486 meetings and had a bunch of negative screens. It's not going to, I mean, I could still be completely out of my mind and you're not going to pick that up in these screening tools because you're not screening for the right thing. Yeah, you're, um, you've certainly rebuilt a life and regained some balance. And it sounds like you've done that basically on your own. I mean, you've used your resources in life, but you didn't do it through any channels of a standard program, certainly not 12 steps. So it's almost like you're following through with these requirements, not only despite the fact that these aren't the things that are helping you or define you as a decent person and an active citizen, but you're actually 
it's almost like here's the finish line for you now that you're a have to balance in your life and also here's some hurdles yeah and uh you know we'll, we'll make you jump those hurdles for as long as it takes to yeah and most likely at the end of this when i get reinstated um for what i understand they're probably gonna if i want to keep my license force me into another three-year contract of monitoring as i'm practicing if Ooh. i even practice i don't i don't at this point i'm not even sure if i'm going to go back into practice but i mean the main reason that i'm doing this is that i think it's so unjust and it's just so wrong that we're we're making it worse for people in healthcare that deal with this sure. and i want to make a change and it's really hard to make a change as an outsider who didn't do the program and so i'm mainly going through this to give my so that i can have credibility with the nursing board you know, have a, an active license back so that then I can speak and they'll hear me because I did it and followed through with it. You know what I mean? Like if I give it up and say, screw you, keep your license and then yell from the outside, I don't think I would have the credibility that I would have had I gone through this, gotten my license back and then made a lot, went through a lot of channels to make change. And that sucks, right? I mean, it's completely discriminatory. <laughs> uh, I'm, no doubt. I just wanted to say, it's inspiring what you're doing. It sounds like you've built an essence around the advocacy for sort of justice in this realm. And, I, and now I know that you work for, and so you're, it's not like you're not keeping yourself busy and it's not like you haven't made a decent life for yourself. It sounds like you're really just going through this effort, perhaps to practice nursing again, but more so just as a milestone. And if nothing else, even if not something for yourself, it shows other people, look, if you really want to, if you're really a person who, doesn't agree with this ideology and you want to you know, get in your situation and you want to reinstate your license and, and get back into the work that you know and love, this is what it takes. This is how long it's taken. It's a great message. It's an unfortunate one, but it, you're doing hard and probably thankless work and I'm really appreciating it. You have anything else before we sign off though that, that you'd like to message to people, listeners of either the social exchange or the Life Process Program podcast, which keep in mind, people listening to the latter are probably people who are just at the beginning stages of thinking about their journey toward regaining balance. You know, to those folks, I would say, be really skeptical of what people are going to tell you. And, and then just one quick thing about that, since you mentioned Brooke and the work that we do, you know, the job that I do and have done for the past two years, um, not with Brooke, but with another place, but same type of thing, violates everything that people in the industry are going to tell you you can't do. Like mm -hmm. I work every day with people who are actively using, sometimes right in front of me, and that does not do anything to tickle me in any way to want to use. Uh, I'm around active users all the time. And... For me, this is why I don't define recovery as counting days, but satisfaction. The reason that I don't have an urge to use around them when they're doing this and, and being around drugs is because my role there is to help them. And I find personal satisfaction and a lot of health and just growth. And I just feel like my life means something when I'm helping these other people. And so the whole people, places, things and all that kind of stuff that you're going to hear is nonsense. And so I just say, you know, spend time and really think about what you're hearing. Um, and then think about your own struggle and just really figure out what works for you. But don't, don't drink the Kool-Aid. Is there anywhere I can direct people? I don't know if you put up work or if you want people to be linked to your social media, but um, if so, let me know where I can send people. I'll put that in the show notes. Yeah, of course. I mean, you can link them to my Twitter account, you know, or, and my, uh, you know, we have a podcast, which I didn't talk about that. Yeah, so I mean, just the reason, so being a, a nurse in, in, in quote unquote recovery, 
I found it a really lonely place to be, and I just couldn't understand why nobody else was talking about it. And so I eventually met up with this doc, and he was an anesthesiologist and went through a really rough road and being shamed in the papers and got into recovery. And we started talking a lot about, like, why doesn't anybody talk about this? You know, peer support will be incredible for us. And so we started doing a podcast called The Health Professionals in Recovery Show, um, where we kind of just, you know, we have guests, that other health professionals who are talking about their journey. And, you know, Sean Fogler, you know, my other co-host, you know, we talk a lot about, really we talk in real time about the struggles that we're having. I mean, one of the most recent episodes we did was, you know, I was starting to have urges to use because I was unsatisfied in my life for a really brief period of time. So we kind of dissected, you know, what does that look like in an honest fashion of the daily struggle of someone who, you know, likes to do drugs periodically. Mm-hmm. And, but I mean, the big reason we did it was just advocacy and to try to really encourage other people in healthcare to stand up and say, Hey man, I got through this. I'm in recovery. You, not you can too, but more we're out there and there is a support group. So it was really, I think what we're trying to do is start a movement within healthcare that we talk openly and honestly about people that struggle with addiction, that are docs and nurses and medics, and we get through it and it's okay to say so. And so that's sort of where that came from. I got so engrossed in thinking and talking to you about your backstory that even though I knew you did that podcast, I forgot to mention it. I just totally... Yeah, separate, <laughs> separate space in my mind. Yeah. So we could have talked about that a while, but maybe, maybe it would be cool to have both of you on sometime and just talk about the show. But oh, that'd be a lot of fun because yeah, I mean Sean's again, he's another guy. It's a lot smarter than I am. And <laughs> thank you, sell yourself guy. short, but you're at least you're humble. Yeah. <laughs> well, I'm interested in in catching what how how many episodes by the way have you? Uh eight so far. Okay. Yeah, we just started in April, so. I'll direct people there. And I just want to say again, Bill Kinkle, thank you so much for spending time with me today. Hey, no problem, Zach. I really appreciate the opportunity.